Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 183 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Pastoring Line, an interview with Pastor Dan Price. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a very interesting episode with a Christian pastor who went on this spiritual, emotional, and physical journey that was triggered by Lyme disease. And Rich, Pastor Dan taught us so much. The first thing he talked to us about is how traditional doxy dosing is not enough. He then went on to talk to us about damage that can be done to the brain from Lyme disease and how to overcome it. He then talked to us about how he had to pivot from treatment to treatment until he finally found success and reached remission, and even touched on the sexual transmission of Lyme disease. And Matt, the most beautiful part of the story was the transformation Pastor Dan had gone through. He became a more empathetic pastor because he had his own emotional challenges that were triggered by Lyme, and he discovered some new talents where he is now a professional photographer. So without further ado, Matt, I'm happy to introduce Pastor Dan Price. Hey, Pastor Dan, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. And um, just so that we can uh, first identify why I'm calling you Pastor Dan, please share with our audience uh, what you do primarily. I know you have a couple of uh, jobs, but talk to us about your main job. Yeah, so my main job, I work at a, um, a church in Bend, Oregon, as an executive pastor, and I do music too. Um, I've been doing that in a couple different churches for the past about 20 years. So um, that's been my my main career, I've had a couple other careers on the side, but th that's my main job there. Well, talk to us about your secondary career, because we actually discovered you through some of the great work you're doing as a, as a photographer and, and what you're posting on social media. Yeah, so actually, and in, in my secondary career relates to Lyme disease because it started because of Lyme. So that might be something to, to get into at some point here. Um, but it's as a photographer, um, I do nature landscape photography and that's primarily what's on my instagram but i shoot for a lot of big brands and companies and um, do a lot of work outside of my normal job uh, because of uh, what i've been able to do there so yeah it's it's a fun one so we're going to come back to that of course so uh, talk mm -hmm. to us about your childhood where did you grow up and what were your goals when you were growing up yeah, so I grew up in Akron, Ohio, um, so Rust Belt town in the Midwest. Um, I, uh, as a kid, uh, basically wanted to be a baseball player my whole life. Uh, so until I, I, I had an accident uh, in high school, broke my back, and and fortunately, I wasn't gonna, you know, I wasn't gonna make it as a pro baseball player, anyways. But that sealed the deal with me. So um, that, uh, you know, just kind of had a normal average everyday, um, lifestyle played outside a lot. Um, cause it was, this was before, you know, we, I mean, the computers existed, but we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. So it was outside with the neighborhood kids playing baseball and makeshift field, um, almost every day. So basketball, if it was basketball season, football, if it was football season, but, um, you know, as far as growing up, all I thought about was sports. So, um, and outside stuff. That was, so, that was my life. So as an athlete and an outdoorsy kid, um, were you aware of ticks and did you take any precautions to protect yourself from getting Lyme disease during your childhood? Not at all. No, I don't, I don't think I actually had heard of Lyme disease until I became an adult. So as a kid, that wasn't even on our radar at all. Um, no. So let's, let's talk about your, your college educational experience. Where'd you go to college and what'd you mm -hmm. major in? Yeah, so I went to a, a small school called Cedarville in Ohio, um, and I majored in communications and 
had a few different minors, um, all humanities based, um, because I was kind of, I, I leaned artistically, um, but then uh, ended up doing some business stuff as well um, and starting some small businesses and things. Um, so communications, it was, uh, it was a major that I felt like I liked all the classes. It wasn't something that I had a dream to uh, go into radio or newspaper or anything like that. Um, but I just liked uh, persuasive theory and rhetoric and uh, the study of how um, people think and, and how you persuade people and um, what's going on uh, behind the words that people are using. So so um, during your undergraduate experience, um, did you learn anything about ticks and Lyme disease? And were you, again, aware of any steps that you should be taking to protect your health from coming in contact with ticks? Not at all. You know, I, I, I had heard of Lyme disease by that point, but I didn't even know what it was or how you got it at all. So, um, and looking back, it's, it's kind of a shame because I know that, uh, where I was in Ohio, it, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of ticks, there's a lot of Lyme disease. And so, um, no, it was, it was not something that my community talked about that I had, I didn't have friends that I knew that had Lyme or that, um, talked about it at all. So where did your life and your career take you after you graduated from college? Yeah, so after that, I, um, I, I started doing uh, ministry stuff, which was, for me, um, not something that I ever wanted to do um, previously. I grew up in a um, house where, actually, my stepdad was a prison chaplain, and it was, um, he did, he, like, stepped out of a business career because he had this heart for prisoners, um, and, and trying to um, make a way for them to um, kind of repair the damage they've done in their life and make things right with God and, and with people that they've hurt. Um, and so he left a business career to do that. And I saw just how hard that was. Never wanted to enter into ministry and stuff. But I had some opportunities that were in front of me um, that were um, kind of life-changing experiences um, with building into people. And uh, that led me into um, taking a job at a church in Columbus, Ohio, um, as a youth pastor and, uh, and doing music stuff. I played in bands, so um, music was a pretty easy thing for me to kind of bring over to the church world as well. Um, and then ended up in Michigan for several years, um, for about 15 years. And, uh, and through that, then started doing the business side of uh, the church that I was in. It grew a ton and needed more organizational help. And so I did staff management, um, organizational uh, policy structure, all of that stuff, um, and became the executive pastor at that church. And then ended up coming out here about um, three years ago to um, Oregon. So. so let's talk about your time in Michigan. Is that the time when you first started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be uh, your Lyme disease. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I was in Michigan and I was honestly like, um, pretty active, pretty outdoors, um, as much as I possibly could be, uh, played sports, um, as an adult, you know, played in, uh, basketball league, played softball and, um, hiking and everything else that I could possibly do disc golf. Um, so I was outside, I was active, I was lifting weights, um, you know, it's been, it's, it's weird to look back on pictures of how um, strong I was, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, uh, because I'd been lifting, you know, three or four times a week. Um, our social life, I was married, I have three kids, um, and um, we were busy in a, in a fun way. We had people over to our house all the time. I would say that 
now I'm probably more of an introvert than an extrovert, but then I felt like an extrovert. At least I was energized by people. We had people, I mean, seriously, um, probably three or four times a week at our house. Sometimes it was huge parties of 40 or 50 people all hanging out. So um, we were a very go, go, go type of family. Um, kids all, you know, were active, played sports, uh, son played soccer, daughter played uh, dance. So we we're taking kids all over the place too. Uh, just kind of living a normal um, young family type of life um, that was active. All right, so you, you have this active family and you have this active professional life all sort of folding together. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're an extrovert uh, and um, you're in Michigan, right? And um, now what did you know about ticks and Lyme disease in Michigan? Meaning were there any um, health education programs or were there any awareness programs in Michigan? Because we're aware of many people who got Lyme disease. In fact, one of our, one of our, um, uh, our very good friends and one of the leaders in the Lyme community actually got bitten by a tick when she was visiting her husband's family in Michigan. So obviously it's a huge problem. Were you aware of the problem before you got sick? At that time, I didn't know of anyone that had Lyme. Uh, and again, it wasn't something that I heard anyone talk about, wasn't it? And at that time, I honestly didn't even know that uh, it was a tick-borne illness. Um, and so, no, I was pretty unaware. Um, I would, you know, the, the only reason we used um, off or deed or anything like that was to ward off the mosquitoes because the mosquitoes are pretty bad in Michigan. Um, but it, it had nothing to do with ticks or disease or any of that. Um, so, so I was about unaware. Your symptoms, what were your early symptoms and how are they affecting this very active life that you and your family were living together? Yeah, so it was uh, 2012. It was um, late in the year. I think it was like December. And um, my symptoms, I feel like, are atypical compared to other people that I've talked to. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But at least uh, the people that I know, it wasn't quite uh, like mine. But I remember getting a fever, um, a low-grade fever, um, you know, in the 100 degree, you know, about their uh, range. And it honestly didn't really go away for more than a day or so at a time for uh, four plus years. And so I started feeling sick. I honestly thought I had a flu, you know, it was Michigan. It was starting to get cold. It was um, flu season. And so I was sick. And I remember after two weeks of just having this constant fever and feeling this fatigue that was just beyond any fatigue that I've ever felt before what is going on here? I don't understand. Like the sickness is not going away. And then it probably took me um, a month and a half before I went to see a doctor um, because I was just like, what is going on? And I started aching, you know, it was, I, you ache when you have a flu, but I started aching really bad and not being able to sleep. My joints were hurting. Um, and so symptoms. And um, I honestly thought, man, this is a flu that's not going away. Um, the doctors kind of didn't take it seriously at first either. And so um, they're just kind of like, well, it looks like you have the flu, just kind of deal with it. You'll, you'll get better. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but right, it kept so, going. So then let's talk about that moment in your life where you have this low grade fever for a long time yeah. uh, and you're feeling fatigue, unlike anything you've ever felt before. First, talk to us about how that those symptoms were impacting your family. Meaning, what impact was it having on your wife, and what impact was it having on your children? Yeah, that's a 
that's a great question. Um, and that's probably honestly like uh, one of the hardest things for me to think about because for me, I can deal with um, being sick on my own and everything, but I know that it impacted my family a lot. And so the emotional fold that honestly that took on me was probably greater than just me being sick. Um, and so um, my wife is a champ. Um, she honestly went into caretaker mode. Uh, we didn't know what was going on, but she knew I was sick. And uh, I can't, you know, I know there's so many stories of couples not being able to make it through severe sickness like this. And um, I attribute it all to her and her character and, um, and who she is that she just stuck with me, took care of us. She stepped up into uh, being really the mom and dad for our kids um, in a lot of ways. Uh, well, give us I some detail on that. So, so yeah. your your wife. How did your wife's life change as a result of now having to become your caretaker when you were dealing with your Lyme disease symptoms? That's a great question. She uh, it changed a ton. So she, uh, you know, I would go to work, and I was honestly like so sick that I felt like you know what, maybe I shouldn't be working, but I had to provide for my family, and so I just went to work every day, even though I felt terrible. And so she uh, did everything else though. She, I mean, she was working as well. Um, and so she was working for a financial planning agency. Um, and, uh, but she would take the kids to all their sports and school and pick them up and drop them off and arrange everything and think through everything. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but my, my processing was becoming slower. And so she was honestly taking over the processing of our family schedule and all of that for me. I would come home and um, honestly just be so tired. I would go to bed and uh, try to sleep on the couch so that I was around the family, um, even though I wasn't able to get up and really do anything. Uh, but she would basically cover for me. And so she would, um, she did all the parenting. Um, if there's discipline, she would talk to the kids about what needs to change. Um, if there was um, fun stuff that, you know, they honestly, uh, as a family, uh, did a lot less, uh, when I became sick. And so, but the kids did need to have some fun in their life and she would take them out, um, on her own, maybe with one of her friends, um, and, you know, go to the water park in the summer or, or whatever it was, but she basically took over as the parent. And so, um, for me, I was, the kids knew I was sick, uh, they were gracious with me, honestly. They were great. Um, my littlest one, um, so he was born in 2012, so um, just a little bit before I was sick. And so he would come and just sit with me on the couch, um, and that was easy. Uh, the two, two older ones, I honestly felt so bad that I couldn't engage in ways that they experienced um, uh, love. And so like playing, being active with them, uh, just doing things outdoors like they would have loved to have me do. Um, so that was tough, honestly. So for me, mentally, emotionally, um, seeing my family not have, uh, me at a hundred percent, but instead probably at like 20%, um, was a tough thing for me knowing that my wife was carrying double the weight, um, of parenting and also taking care of me too. So she, you know, we would share duties and then it, you know, as far as the house and everything, all the chores and everything that you think of doing um, as a family, uh, it was all kind of on her to carry. So 
So talk to us about the emotions that you were feeling as a result of your wife essentially becoming the sole parent and the sole caretaker of your house. How did you feel emotionally? Yeah, I mean, I felt guilty, honestly. Um, and I know that it wasn't my fault that I was sick, um, but I felt guilty and there's nothing I could do about feeling that way. Um, so I, I saw what she was doing. Um, I knew that I could never repay her for what she was doing. Uh, I knew that she wasn't doing it because she uh, uh, was was just doing it out of duty, but she loved me and, and loved our family and and wanted to. So that 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 almost made it harder, you know, just seeing her um, attitude through it. Um, but it was it was tough because she was tired too. I mean, when you're a caretaker, you become uh, really really tired really quick. And I think um, she was dealing with her own stuff that I couldn't even engage and help her with um, because of, of the toll that it was taken on us as a family. Now, do you believe your wife was suffering from caretaker burnout at any time? And if she was, how did that affect you emotionally? Yeah, I think she was, um, especially like in the latter years of, of me being really sick. Um, and for me, that was at the point that I was becoming uh, cognitively slower and less aware of anything, honestly. And so looking back, I can see how it affected her. Uh, but I also feel like I was just barely surviving. So it was hard for me to even like engage in understanding what was going on around me. Um, but she did have some really, really great friends. And, and I can't say this enough. Like we are just thankful for some of the community that we had. We had some amazing friends that saw where we were that took care of us in the middle of that. So I felt like as I was being cared for by Suzanne, she was being cared for by our other friends um, in ways that I didn't know until I looked back and, and, and was kind of out of that season of um, just being really slow and not being able to process well. Um, so we had a couple, I'll go for it. I'm sorry. Let, let's talk about how you felt as a parent. Now you, 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 you were feeling, you were feeling guilty as a result of not upholding your part of the bargain with your wife mm -hmm. in, in, um, in your marriage. How did, how were you feeling, uh, now that you were unable to be the parent you wanted to be? Yeah. I mean, um, the same, I felt guilty. Um, and, and, and at the same time I knew it wasn't my fault, but, it, but it, uh, you know, I felt guilty that I wasn't more available for sure. Um, I know that there are so many situations where um, parents do have a choice to engage with their kids and decide not to. And for this, it was tough for me to want to, but not be able to. Um, and so I, even now, honestly, I feel like some of my kids um, lost some of um, their childhood experience of having a dad. And I, I, I can't make up for that, but I do try to re be really intentional and engage with them uh, because, you know, my oldest one's 17 now. And so he's almost out of the house and um, my middle, my daughter is 13. And so I want to have, uh, I want them to have a childhood where they look back and they said, you know, my parents did everything they could to be involved in my life. There was a season there that my dad couldn't, but when he could, he engaged. And so I didn't want that to honestly become a habit that, kept living out uh, because I feel like you could get out of the, the habit of what it means to be a dad uh, by being sick. And then once you feel better, you could kind of stick to your own, you, you could be more selfish, honestly. And I felt the temptation for that. Um, but I've really wanted to choose 
intentionality with my family and with my kids. What impact do you believe that the emotion of guilt that you are feeling as a result of not being able to uphold your obligations to your wife and not being able to uphold your obligations to your children had on the uh, development of your, uh, of your illness? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's so hard for me to say because um, there are so many factors that play into what uh, sick was for me. So, you know, when you define what is Lyme disease and what is, what is it like to have Lyme disease? It's so many things um, because it's physical, it's um, mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual. It's all those things for me wrapped in one and they're all hurting in different ways. And so um, whether the, the guilt caused anything with my sickness or it was a result or was combined and and with some of each. Um, I feel like mentally I was deteriorating and uh, my emotional state was deteriorating as, as well. Um, And guilt was part of that. And so, um, you know, I was frustrated um, because, uh, you know, you, uh, you get to this point where, you know, like I've, I was ready to, if I had, if, if I was going to die because of this, I had kind of made peace with the fact that, okay, I could die from this, but the fact that it was just going on and on and it was the sickness that seemed like it wasn't going to have an end. I didn't know if I would ever get better. I didn't know if I would see any uh, rate of recovery at all. I thought this might be my life. And so honestly that, and knowing that I couldn't do what I felt like I should be able to do for my family combined to become a frustrating thing that probably snowballed into a bigger and bigger deal as I got sicker and sicker. And so it was something that like, I felt frustrated a little bit at the beginning. And then man, by a few years into this, um, I'm like, uh, I didn't know what to do. I was, I was helpless. So Dan, let, let's talk about what you were able to do. You said that you needed to provide for your family. And as a result of that, you were going to work, even though you weren't sure that you had the capacity to work. How are things going as uh, as the executor pastor at the church you were working at in Michigan during this window of time when your symptoms were developing? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I, uh, I felt like I was doing the um, bare necessities to be able to get my job done um, and was making it happen through uh, sheer will. And, uh, and I had some good help around me too. So I, I had an executive assistant that um, saw that I was sick and that was um, really aware of what I needed and how to prepare me for meetings. And so it's kind of crazy. Um, I would, she would, she would um, collect my notes after a meeting, uh, make notes for the next meeting that I had with someone and prep me uh, 15 minutes before I had the next meeting with someone and just kind of like walk me through um, what I needed to do. And so I felt like between having help, that was really good. And just knowing that, like, if I don't do this, I'm not sure how my family's going to get taken care of and, and forcing my way to be at work. Um, uh, it, it was, it was tough though, uh, because I felt like I wasn't giving, um, anything beyond just baseline function to the people I was serving. So talk to us about, you know, you're the spiritual leader of a community at the time. Um, how were you failing to meet the needs of that community because you were sick and what impact was that having on you emotionally? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I think, uh, it it would depend on, uh, 
the different people that I was serving. So we had a staff of about like 50 or 60 people. And my primary focus was taking care of them. Um, and so we had other people that were speaking on the weekends, preaching and teaching, doing all of that. But my focus was on the staff. And so um, I felt like uh, it was like triage more than it was development of people. And so I was triaging situations. Um, I was uh, trying to figure out how to prioritize my time uh, when it was so limited and when my energy was so limited. And so, um, it, you know, I think some people were probably served okay with that. Um, and, and then some people um, honestly weren't developed as much as um, they could have been uh, if I would have been 100%. Now, let's talk about where you were spiritually um, as a result of your developing illness, as a result of your failure to uh, meet your obligations to your wife, to your children, and now to the community of people that you were serving, did that cause any doubt to creep into your, um, into your spirit? Yeah, I mean, doubt, I don't think so, honestly, to be, and I know that sounds weird. It seems like there would be doubt, um, you know, but my faith, my faith was pretty strong, um, not because I felt like um, I was strong in that, but because when I honestly, when I look at my faith and, and what I see in the Bible, I see people suffering and I see instruction on what it means to suffer. And I see um, a hope where there isn't suffering anymore. And so I kind of clung to the stuff that I felt was true um, in the middle of my suffering. Um, that doesn't mean that I wasn't angry or upset or hard that I was going through it because I don't want to go through this. Um, and so I think back to, there's a character in the Bible called Job um, going through um, just crazy, crazy suffering that God was allowing. Um, and there was a purpose behind it and everything, but he wasn't allowed to see that for most of it. And so I kind of clung to stuff like that in scripture. I'm like, well, this doesn't go against my faith. This actually uh, fits into my faith pretty well when I'm going through. I'm still angry and upset about it, um, but um, it wasn't something that made me doubt, I guess. So you were grieving at the time. And part of mm -hmm. that grief was that you were angry. And part of that grief was, um, was a process of, uh, of, of sadness. Um, yep. But um, was there any bargaining during that grieving period? Meaning were you bargaining with God or were you bargaining with anyone? Um, and during that process, did you ever have any doubt about whether or not you would get better? Oh, you know what? I, I can't really remember if I did any bargaining with God. Um, it's definitely possible. So much of that, um, my mental, I mean, it, on, on the one hand, you're laying in bed every second that you're not working <laughs> when you're that sick. And so you have a lot of time to think and everything, but your thoughts aren't that clear and my memory wasn't very good. And so I'm not sure um, exactly what kind of thoughts I had um, pertaining to, you know, making a deal with God. But I definitely felt like I wasn't going to get better um, for almost the whole time. And so my whole thought process was like, I'm not going to get better. Um, what does that mean for the future? Um, you know, I was okay with, I, I was honestly, and I'm, I don't mean to be flipping about this. I was honestly um, prepared to die if need be, but living forever with a sickness like this was way worse than that. In my mind, if it was going to be, um, man, I have 40 years of being sick like this. 
oh, I couldn't, I didn't know how to face that. And so I, I did feel like if that was the answer that, you know, after talking to all these doctors, if that was going to be the answer that they were going to give me, I didn't know how I was going to deal with that. So then talk to us about how many doctors you saw and what type of diagnosis you received prior to receiving your Lyme disease diagnosis. Yeah. So I probably saw four or five doctors um, before I, I actually got a, a Lyme um, diagnosis there. And, you know, my first doctor, he was my primary care physician. He's a great guy, but he hadn't previously seen Lyme patients that he knew of. And so uh, that wasn't on his radar. And instead he tested me for every conceivable cancer um, that was out there. Cause they saw, honestly, when I went in, um, you know, after that first time I went back in, you know, a few weeks later, um, a few weeks later, I, I was like, I'm still sick. I still have the flu. Or don't know what to do. Um, so he started doing blood work on me and testing me for cancers and, um, lupus and cat scratch fever and uh, a couple other diseases that I can't even remember, um, that all, everything turned back negative. So it came back to me negative and it was, it was kind of crazy. I went to a podiatrist because I had joint pain, especially in my feet that wasn't allowing me to sleep. And I, uh, was told by the podiatrist, it looks like you have arthritis, but you're only, you know, 35. So this doesn't really make sense. Um, I had kidney stones and thought maybe this fever is being caused by some kind of infection. And so they looked at that, um, blasted the kidney stones and then nothing changed. And so I kept going to different specialists based on the symptoms that I was seeing. Um, none of them really tied it together to this is all the same thing or this is all kind of related. Um, and so there's a reason for, for this that's bigger than, than kind of what we're seeing here. Um, frustrating for sure. So Dan, I, I want to revisit the faith and doubt question with you, uh, only because mm -hmm. you're a pastor, and I think it's important for us to um, ask questions within your realm of expertise. So you said to me a, a little while ago that you didn't lose faith, meaning you didn't lose faith in God, and that you mm -hmm. that you um, you had your touchstones and you had uh, biblical characters like Job that you could rely on, but it does sound to me that you lost faith in your ability to heal that you were going to sort of be sick and perhaps even die. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think your, your, your faith as, um, as a Christian and as a pastor mm -hmm. didn't help you to believe that you were going to have the ability to heal when you were in the throes of these challenges? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I mean, the basic answer is that um, in my faith, healing comes in the next life, um, as far as complete healing. Um, and I had seen too many people, um, that had strong faith, um, that passed away. I'd been in hospitals. I'd, I'd been with families as loved ones passing. Uh, my dad passed away, um, uh, when I was four from cancer. Um, and so I knew that that was, um, part of life. And also when I looked at scripture, it was consistent with that. And so I didn't feel like there was any promise from God that you're going to be healthy and, um, and live out your dreams. Uh, that doesn't mean that I didn't want to, and that I, uh, you know, I obviously don't want to face, I don't want to go through Lyme disease again. I don't want to face health issues like this again. Uh, but there's no promise, um, from God or, or when I see what I see in the Bible, um, there's no promise there. 
that in this life that's going to be healed, but it is going to be healed someday. And so that's where my hope was. Now, when you were going to all these doctors and you were not getting a diagnosis, um, what impact that have on your faith? And did you Mm -hmm. believe that that was consistent with the promises or the lack of promises about uh, the ending of suffering that you were reading in scripture? Yeah. uh, I don't know if it really, uh, I know it's weird to say, I don't know if it really had much of an impact on my, on my faith. Um, I felt, you know, cause I, I felt like I had, I'd seen this before with other people and I wasn't special compared to the people that I've served or the, the people that have gone through hard things. But did you um, so believe from, your suffering had some purpose? I mean, when you were in the throes of this and you were feeling terribly and you were failing your wife and failing your children mm-hmm. and failing the people that you were serving at work. I mean, did the suffering have some purpose in your mind? Yeah. So, so that's a great question because I felt like, uh, for a while I didn't, I didn't know. Um, and so that's hard if you feel like you're suffering needlessly and you don't see a purpose in it. Uh, and sometimes I don't know if we get the answers on this side, but, uh, there are many things that happen that I, I do see, uh, a purpose, uh, for my life, something that came out of that, that, uh, changed who I am that changed the people around me. Uh, and so I am thankful for that. And I'm going to ask uh, you to pause on that for a minute because we are going to talk yeah. about that, but I just want you to just sort of bring us back to what you were feeling when you were in the yeah. throes of your yeah. chronic disease and you don't have a diagnosis and you're failing everyone and you're feeling guilty. Did yep. you feel at that moment that there was a purpose for your suffering or did you doubt that? Yeah, I, d- I doubted that. I, I didn't know if there was. And so uh, where, where I didn't doubt that, you know, my faith was real and that God was real. Uh, I did doubt that like, all right, this, this may or may not have any purpose at all. Um, I'm just struggling to survive here. Uh, I don't see, um, I mostly see people hurting around me because of, of my sickness. And so um, you're in, you're in the depths of despair there. You're, you're just, um, thinking like, this is, there's not anything that I wake up and feel like, oh man, this was a good day. This was, um, everything was hard. And so even the things that were, um, moments of joy, um, or, or something that happened that was good, it was still, you're sick. while you're in the middle of that. You know, if a kid is, uh, achieving something at school or sport or something, that's awesome. It's fun to see your kid be happy in some way. Um, but man, I'm still, I feel like I'm dying here. I'm, I feel like I'm unable to get better and um, can barely function and, and can't even celebrate with them the way that I want to. So yeah, absolutely. There were, there were probably years in there where I didn't know, man, does my suffering make sense at all? Does, does this sickness um, have any purpose? So Pastor Dan, I want to go back to your primary care physician who tested you for cat scratch fever or Bartonella, which is a, a co-infection or a tick-borne mm-hmm. illness that goes along with Lyme disease. Did your primary care physician or any other doctor think Lyme in parallel to cat scratch fever? No, uh, Lyme wasn't anything that I recall being part of the discussion at all. And I know it wasn't something that I was tested for at that time. Um, And so I wasn't part of it. Did you have cats? Did the doctor ask you your history about, you know, being around animals and being scratched by a cat? What led your doctor to think cat scratch fever? I'm not sure. Um, I think by that time, that was probably one of the later things that he like threw into the mix of get tested for this. 
um, because we had run out of every other kind of cancer <laughs> that he was looking for. We'd gone through pretty much the whole list. And I think he was just um, trying to, to do due diligence and go through more. So no, we didn't have a cat. We didn't have pets. Um, and so there wasn't any, um, that, w- that wasn't even close to the first thing that he tested for probably because of those reasons. Did you get any diagnosis before Lyme disease that you thought might actually be the real cause behind your illness? Yeah. The, the one that I was most hopeful for that I was like, this could be the answer was having a kidney stone. Uh, cause I was like, okay, I did read that you can get infections if the stone, um, is in a certain spot and that can cause fevers that, that are ongoing until you get it taken care of. And so for me, that was the one. And my doctors honestly were pretty hopeful too. Like maybe this is the thing. Um, and so, um, that's the other ones. I honestly had no idea. Um, you know, cancer, I, I, I had no idea if, if those were, um, we're going to be something that came up positive or not. Um, I was kind of hoping for anything to honestly um, be true so that we actually had an action plan and knew what our next step was. Um, not knowing was, was harder for me. So how long was it until you finally got your Lyme diagnosis? It was two years. And what doctor or group of doctors eventually diagnosed you? Yeah. So my primary care um, physician, uh, referred me to the Bourne Clinic in Grand Rapids. And uh, they do um, a lot of different types of care, but but they do a lot of preventative care too. But um, I went in my first um, meeting with Dr. Bourne. I um, told her my symptoms and she immediately went to Lyme. She said, this sounds just like Lyme. So clinically off the bat, she thought it was Lyme. Um, and then she uh, did a test. I think it was the Western blot. Um, sent that away and it came back positive um, a couple weeks later. And so um, I met with her again and I, and I honestly, like when she said, okay, I've got some news for you. Um, your Lyme test came back positive. I got excited um, because I didn't know what Lyme was. And so I was like, yes, this is finally, um, we have an answer here uh, after, after a couple of years of this. And she said, hold on this isn't something to honestly get excited about because this is a tough disease that some people don't recover from and it's going to be a long road ahead. And around this time, your wife started to have some health issues too. So talk to us about your wife's health issues and how they connected and correlated back to your health issues. Yeah. So, um, and this was, this was a little bit after, um, I had, you know, this is probably a year later, but my wife started getting sick and immediately, um, went to the doctor and the doctor said, we need to get a Lyme test on you uh, because of your husband. And so uh, hers came back positive as well. Uh, and at that time, the, the doctors that we had talked to um, said that Lyme wasn't sexually transmit, transmitted, but, um, or, or they didn't know if it was. Or, um, but looking back, it seems like it, that's, that happens all the time. And so that's my, that's my best guess because she never saw a tick either. She wasn't outside as much at this point in our lives because we were just trying to take care of um, ourselves. And so um, that's my guess at how she got Lyme. She uh, was really sick. It, fortunately for her, she, she honestly got really sick really fast, which led us to um, the conclusion that she has Lyme and, and getting that test and everything and, and getting treatment right away. She went on oral antibiotics, um, just kind of your, your typical doxy, uh, but with more, I think double the dosages that, you know, that they're used to giving out. 
and uh, she was better within um, several months. And so um, the weird thing, uh, which I don't, I mean, I, I hated seeing her sick at the same time. She was able to feel what it is like to have Lyme to feel really sick. And so we were kind of in it together at that point where we both felt like, okay, we both know what this is like. This sucks. We don't dream this on anyone. And, uh, and she was able to kind of empathize with me there. So how long was your wife on doxycycline for? Yeah, I think by the end of her treatment, it was probably close to a year that she was actually on it. Um, she stayed on after symptoms were gone because doctors wanted to make sure that um, they had kind of overtreated it to make sure that there wasn't hidden bacteria there replicating uh, that was going to come back. So now circling back to your Lyme journey, were you treated with oral antibiotics as well? Yeah. So um, actually, by the, by the time my wife was treated, I was at a different doctor. Um, my, the At the Bourne Clinic, uh, they did a lot of um, things that seemed to work well with other people that just didn't work well with me. Um, as far as um, there was uh, IV um, blood treatment where my blood would go through this IV um, light and kind of clean, clean the blood, kill bacteria and, and uh, come back inside me. Um, acupuncture, did a bunch of diet things, did uh, vitamin C IVs as well, which some of that stuff made me feel a little bit better and could have contributed uh, to my health. But at the same time, none of it really helped me get better. I was still in some ways, I felt like physically, maybe I was improving a little bit, but my mental state, my cognitive impairment was getting worse. Um, And so I ended up getting referred to a, another doctor, um, and that's kind of where I, I ended up seeing some progress. So, Pastor, while you were doing this IV blood therapy, diet, acupuncture, and IV vitamins, were you also taking oral antibiotics? Yeah, I was doing, um, I was doing oral doxycycline, and um, they switched it up a couple different times to see if I had different reactions to um, different antibiotics. And I can't remember the name of the other um, drugs, but they did switch it up a couple times, and um and so, no, it, I, I wasn't seeing progress, though. It just wasn't really making a big um, difference in, in my health and, and wasn't getting better. So why do you think your wife got better on Doxy alone, and yet you were on Doxy and some other treatment protocols and you didn't get better? Do you think it's because it took you longer to get diagnosed and your wife got a much quicker diagnosis and therefore she was more likely to heal from the disease? That's my belief is that we caught it with her as soon as she started showing symptoms um, and two plus years into, into mine, I feel like the, the bacteria had replicated enough that it was just a bigger thing to deal with. And so for her, even though she felt really sick, I felt like they caught it early enough um, where the, you know, it didn't take long once she was on Doxy to start feeling better. Um, and so even though it was a year-long treatment, it was still something that she saw progress pretty immediately with the doxy. So let's talk about dosing for you. So you mentioned earlier that your wife was treated with more than the recommended dose of doxy. So we know mm-hmm. that typically people are, are prescribed doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for a total of 200 milligrams daily. What yep. dosing were, was your wife on and what dosing were you on when you were doing your first treatment with for Lyme disease? Yeah, so we were both on double that. And that was based on being on forums where we were talking to other people with Lyme at that point. And um, everyone was kind of saying, um, if you, if you really do have Lyme, you should, you should do double. And so we were doing 200 milligrams twice a day for 400 a day. 
Now, were you doing anything else to combat the, the gut health issues that come along with antibiotics and possible other you know, complications that can come from antibiotics? Or were you just focusing on antibiotics at that time? I was on a crazy diet, lost a ton of weight, um, which I didn't really have much late weight to lose at that point. And so I was, um, I was not eating anything that caused inflammation. And so it was really, really, um, you know, raw foods. It was, um, a bunch of pickled foods, pickled vegetables and stuff for the gut health. Um, and that's kind of it. And I mean, I, I, it was like bone broth and pickled vegetables for a couple of years. Um, and I'm not sure if that was, I, I think probably for my gut health, that was probably good. I do think I probably under ate and lost strength that um, maybe was bad for me in a sense to looking back on it. Cause I felt like I was, I uh, was withering away and maybe could have used some more protein during that. So how long were you on this treatment protocol for before you realized it wasn't working? You had to pivot to something else. About a year. So I was, I was on for about a year and, uh, um, you know, I felt like the doctors were doing everything that they had seen work and knew how to, um, treat me for it, but it just wasn't, um, happening for me. And so, um, that's when I heard stories. I, I knew two people or I met two people that had gotten completely better, uh, and had Lyme very severely, you know, were in bed and were now living normal lives. And so that's what led me to the next doctor that I saw. Um, and, uh, so he was near Detroit. He was, a uh, um, uh, kind of this mad genius type of infectious disease specialist. And um, because of his um, treatment stuff, I don't know if I want to name his name in this episode, but um, it was, uh, there was, there were many stories of people that got completely better by going to this guy. Um, I uh, at first started and, and he did a bunch of testing just to make sure that what he saw was the same thing that my previous doctor saw. And then um, he put me on oral antibiotics and he kept giving me these cognitive tests. And I didn't really understand why. Um, I mean, you could tell that I wasn't processing right, but I kept, for whatever reason, passing these tests that he was doing. Um, looking back, I knew that he actually wanted me to fail the test. Um, and so I eventually did fail it because I was having a really bad day at one of my visits with him. And he said, okay, now we're good to go. I'm like, what do you mean by that? He's like, now we're good to go. Um, and so he ordered a, uh, uh, a MRI or CAT scan for my brain. Um, and he found a sinus infection, which is what he wanted to find um, so that he could then treat me with IV antibiotics for that. Earlier on with your doctor prior to this, you mentioned that yeah. you got double the recommended dose of doxy because that's what you'd, re you'd read in the forums. And that's, that's yeah. certainly a lot of studies behind that, including Dr. Viroscano, that, that indicate that's the, the proper dosing for Lyme. But yeah. how did you get your doctor to prescribe that and risk their license potentially? And also, you know, setting up all kinds of red flags about you getting double the dose of doxycycline? I don't know. They just did it. Um, I talked to them and showed them the posts. Um, from, from the Lyme forums and, and, you know, some doctors that were saying that this was the correct protocol and they just did it. So I don't know um, what they had to do on their side of things to get around that or to make that okay. But I appreciate that they tried and that they did it. Pastor John, for those who are listening and need a Lyme litter doctor and are desperate to get help, can they DM you? Can they contact you? Can they email you to get the name of this doctor who helped save your life? 
hundred percent sent many people to him. Yep. It just seems so bizarre now that this mad scientist doctor who is, is known to have cured many people of Lyme disease and, and helped many people with Lyme disease that he was waiting for you to fail a cognitive test. Then he mm-hmm. wanted you to have a sinus infection so he can get you IV antibiotics. And was yep. this all just to game the insurance companies? And I shouldn't say game, but just to get you the proper treatment because current rules and regulations wouldn't allow it for chronic Lyme. So we had to find another way to get you the treatment you needed sort of off label for Lyme disease. Sadly, yes. And he never went into any of that um, because I think he was protecting himself and probably protecting me too. But yeah, looking back on it, it's a hundred percent because uh, chronic Lyme um, one isn't covered by insurance, um, but two isn't something that I, I don't know if he was able to treat off label like that. And so um, I, I think he was, um, he was risking himself and in, in treating me. And so my gratitude to him is, is, ama- is, is huge because that's what ultimately ended up working for me. It's wild that you can get IV antibiotics, no questions asked for a sinus infection, but when you're yeah. suffering from late stage Lyme with crippling fatigue and, and people that are, that are bed bound can't get IV antibiotics, but somebody with a sinus infection can, that's just sort of mind blowing from our perspective. Absolutely. So Talk to us about the process of now getting a pick line put in, what that was like for you, and now getting the IV antibiotics administered. Yeah, the pick line, um, man, that was uh, at this at this point in my life. You know, I'd been through four years of being sick, having a fever every day, and mentally just being drained. And you know, I'd never been anxious or depressed before, but I was anxious and depressed at this time. And so I went in for this pick line, and uh, I was so nervous and, um, and, and, you know, they're putting this, this tube into your, um, your arm that goes all the way to your heart to feed, to feed the antibiotics. And, um, and that process was, I mean, it was probably, um, one of the most, um, difficult things for me to actually go through because I just felt like, is this, I mean, I don't know. It was, it was so nerve wracking. I was anxious. I was, um, not handling it well at that point. Looking back, I feel like today I'd probably be fine if I had to go in for that, but the mental state that I was in, it was tough. And so they put the pick line in. Um, and then basically they had a nurse, um, show up to my house once a week and change my bandages and show me how to administer the IV. Um, and so, Every day for about seven months, I sat for about three hours while uh, antibiotics dripped into my body. And so um, kind of an intense way to take care of this, but um, I appreciate that they were able to do it. So Pastor Dan, we know you didn't make much progress the first year with the oral antibiotics and some of these other alternative treatment protocols. Talk to us what it was like in the beginning days, the first few days, the first few weeks. Were you noticing anything at the early stages of getting the IV antibiotics? Yeah. So I herxed quite a bit, um, which means that I just, I had a, a crazy response. I felt like my, my head was like, not, I mean, I was already, you know, cognitively impaired, but my, I felt like I was out of my body in some ways, um, dizzy. I had vertigo. Um, and the doctors just told me, Hey, you're going to feel weird. It's just kind of push through it. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep going. And so, um, yeah, uh, to, to me, after reading everything that I've read, that was in some ways encouraging, uh, but it's a little bit scary too, because some of it is like, is this an allergy? 
in response to um, these antibiotics coming in, or is it, is this actual Herx? And so um, it was Herx. And, and so it, it's kind of weird, but if you are going through a process like that, I do want to encourage you like to be patient with it. If you can, I've known people that um, did IV antibiotics, they started Herxing and immediately stopped treatment. Um, and for me, if I would have done that, I feel like I wouldn't have seen the progress that I saw. Pastor Dan, do you think that the IV antibiotics would have been as effective if you didn't do your previous treatment with the oral doxycycline for a year, you know, in combination with your acupuncture and your diet and the UV blood therapy? Or do you think that all of that was sort of a wasted effort and you would have gone right to the IV therapy from the get-go? My honest opinion is I would have gone right to the IV therapy uh, from the get-go. Um, I don't know if those were wasted efforts, honestly, or not. Um, I didn't see much progress and the progress that I saw with the IV wasn't, was pretty immediate. And so for me, um, I know that that worked and that's, it seems like that's not the story for everyone else. And so I, I feel like it would be, um, bad stewardship of me to tell other people that, man, you have to follow my path in this. Um, what happens is people reach out to me because I've gotten better and, um, they want to know exactly what I did. And I, and I tell them, but I'm like, but this may or may not work for you. I just don't know um, enough about the science. I'm not a doctor. I'm not able to give you more insight than the fact that I was sick. This is what helped me. So let's talk through the rest of your IV antibiotic journey. How long did the herxing last? And when did you start to feel better on the IV antibiotics? Yeah. So I, I think I herxed for, I don't know, two weeks, probably in the beginning. And then honestly, immediately started feeling somewhat better. Um, and so it, it started happening fast. I, I feel like, uh, the fevers were completely gone after two months of that. Um, and you know, I still was weak from just being sick for so long, but as far as like symptoms, um, my joint pain was, was pretty much gone after two months. And it was, it was pretty, uh, quick in my mind after, after being sick for almost five years at this point to feel like, whoa, in two months, uh, this IV has really done some work and, and at least close to being better. So how long in total were you on IV antibiotics for? I was on for seven months. And so, and I felt, I feel like four months was, I was for sure. I felt like better. Um, and then my doctor just said, let's go a couple more months just to make sure I don't want to go through this again with you. I don't want you have to, uh, and so they did the same thing that they did with my wife with the oral antibiotics. They just, um, said, let's, let's make sure that we kill the bacteria here. And so we're going to go a couple extra months here. And so that's what we did. Now, was it the same antibiotic? Was it the IV ceftraxone or, you know, was it a combination of different IV antibiotics that they were sort of cycling or changing up for you? It was a combination of different, and he, he mentioned the, the biofilms and the fact that the Lyme would adjust to the treatment, and so he was trying to trick it. Um, in my mind, it seemed like he did that pretty well because um, he figured it out, and it, it started working pretty fast. And so it was every uh, couple weeks um, he was changing up the, the formula they were sending me. So what were you doing for your gut health at this point? Were you doing anything else now that you're on the IVs? Because they're even stronger. Or were you just continuing on with, with your, your strict diet and you know pickled foods and things like that that were helping balance out your gut health to sort of counter the damage being done with antibiotics? Yeah, I was doing that and drinking probiotic drinks. Um, and uh, so we were doing uh, 
uh, kombucha and and other drinks that my wife was she she's a researcher so she was finding all these different things and I probably had more probiotic in me than than anything else at that point so um, she was taking care of me with that stuff. So it sounds like about four months into the antibiotics, the IV antibiotics, you were about ninety five percent better, if not in full remission at that point. I th- yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it seemed it seemed that way. So my final question before I hand it back over to Rich is: I know you talked about earlier that you saw a brain injury focused therapist who helped you overcome some, what you think may have been brain damage from Lyme disease. So talk to us about what first, how you think you got the brain damage and second, how the therapy helped you. Yeah. So we had a friend that worked in the medical field that, that referred me to this uh, and she mostly worked with brain trauma, uh, you know, ex military people who had been hurt um, in combat situations but she was interested in, in working with someone that had experienced Lyme disease because they knew that there's uh, neurological damage that happens when you have Lyme. And so she basically was a therapist. And so she worked through the anxiety that had grown in me, um, the depression that I was feeling, uh, but also kind of retrained my brain and gave me confidence that, uh, you know, uh, cognitively I could get back to most of who I was before. And so she just worked through me. Uh, we did EMDR. And so uh, a lot of different things. She used a ton of different therapies. Probably one of the most significant things that she did for me was honestly, she, I'd never taken a, a psych eval before. So she, she did a psych eval with me um, and did an IQ test. Um, and her point, she told me this beforehand was to prove that I'm more there than I thought I was. And that I was I was seeing more progress and, and was going to get to a place of more health than I expected that I would be. And so that really did that. So the results of that were, were pretty encouraging to me. And so um, that might have been the the best part of the therapy, honestly, just her encouragement through that stuff. She did a bunch of other treatments that were for sure helping my brain come back to where it needed to be. But um, that was a unique piece to this too. That's a, that's a, a type of doctor that I had never seen and had never experienced uh, therapy or, or treatment through that stuff, but it was super helpful. So then let's talk about your faith journey when you're going through now the healing process. Um, yeah. What impact was the healing process having on your understanding of the role that suffering was p- playing in your life? And when did you begin to believe that you could heal? Yeah. Um, let me take that, that second one first. Um, I think I began to believe that I could heal when I talked to those two people that had been to this doctor, um, and they had gotten better because up to that point, every single person that I'd talked to, um, who had Lyme still had Lyme and they were still sick and they were still battling it. And so I was honestly more depressed with every person that I talked to. Um, and when I talked to them, um, and they didn't know each other. And they both had the same doctor. So that was encouraging to me. This isn't like some scam they're setting up on me. Um, and so um, I, was, I was hopeful there. I really, when I, um, a few weeks after I started the IV antibiotics and started feeling better, I was, uh, I was like blown away. Like this might actually be real. I might actually be able to gain health back. And so for me, that was, that was when I started believing. Um, as far as the suffering, um, 
I'd say there are multiple things that happened throughout my journey that um, caused me to feel like, okay, there's a plan for this. There's purpose for this. Um, it's not, it's not my um, plan or purpose, but maybe it's God's plan. Um, one of those things was photography came out of this whole thing. Um, and um, I, my primary care physician had told me, because he saw me just wasting away. He said, you need to do something active. Go walk for 20 minutes a day if you can. Even if you're in bed the rest of the day, go walk for 20 minutes. So that's what I did. I walked for 20 minutes a day and took my iPhone and started taking little pictures of just, you know, a trail that I was on or something. Um, I was, I was exhausted, but then I post that to Instagram. And for whatever reason, uh, those pictures started getting like little bits of attention and friends were encouraging and telling me that you have an eye for this stuff. Um, and then I had a, uh, a friend loan me his camera. So the first camera that I ever shot was a, a first generation Canon 5d Mark one, 12 megapixels. It's not as powerful as my iPhone is now. Uh, but I was stood on this hill and there was a storm coming in and underneath the storm was a sunset. And I took this picture and just thinking like, this is a pretty cool shot here. And this is going to, this is going to go well on Instagram. And uh, so I posted it up there and was contacted by an insurance company. And they said, Hey, we saw your picture on Instagram. We're doing a new campaign. Um, could we buy that from you? And so I'm like, sure. And I'm like, how much? And they're like, how about $500? And so I'm like, absolutely. Like, this is like not my job at all. So the fact that you want to buy this picture for 500 bucks is great. Well, that, that picture ended up being their 100 year anniversary, um, whole big marketing campaign. And it was on billboards across the country. And so I had friends that would send me, they'd be in California and they'd send me a picture of the billboard. And, um, I was on a trip to the Badlands in South Dakota and saw a billboard and took a picture of it. And so it was this crazy thing that kind of led to, um, a side career of working with a bunch of, um, brands and, and restaurants and, and, uh, lifestyle products and all kinds of things. And, um, so tons came from that, which it wouldn't have happened without Lyme disease for sure, because it came from taking those 20 minute walks. So I did a gallery that I called prescribed walks. Um, that was kind of basic, all these pictures that were, were taken on these walks that I was told to take by my doctor. Um, and so that came out of it. Um, honestly, a lot of relationships with people that had Lyme disease came out of this too. Um, some of them are, are stories that were encouraging where I was able to help them get treatment. And then some of them were, I talked to this one lady, she was in her mid fifties. She called me because I was a pastor and because I had Lyme disease. Um, but she was 14 years into having Lyme and really sick, couldn't get out of bed at all. And was honestly dying. Um, and she didn't uh, want my advice on treatment or any of that, but she didn't know many people that had been through similar things. And her husband encouraged her to call me and say, Hey, can, can you ask this pastor to pray with you? And so I spent several weeks, you know, once, once a week uh, on the phone with her, just talking through how she's doing and praying with her. And she eventually passed away. Um, and so some of that being able to be there in situations that were important in other people's lives. Um, I wouldn't have had the empathy or the experience or the knowledge or the understanding to sit with people in the middle of some of what they were going through. So looking back, you see a ton of different things that, that kind of came out of this that were encouraging to me. And, and I see a plan and I see a purpose. Talk to us about what you've learned about yourself, meaning what traits, what God-given traits do you have or what 
pieces of your creativity that you now understand that you would never have understood had you not gone through the suffering of Lyme disease? Yeah, I, I feel like this might be, this might not really answer your question, but I feel like I've slowed down intentionally now uh, because I was moving so fast before Lyme disease. And so um, I felt like our lives were, were really almost hectic. I was, I was kind of a workaholic, but also like did a ton of stuff with our family too. Now I'm like just slower paced on purpose. I felt like when I got healthy, I could have made the choice to kind of run back into the hectic um, lifestyle that we were in before, but saw some good that came out of slowing down and spending more time with less people. And so for me, that's been a product of this as far as like, um, you know, who I am and, and what kind of traits I've seen in myself. I think that this has just honestly been a place where I've learned empathy uh, for a lot of people that I, I wouldn't have even seen before maybe. And so one of the things that kind of came out of this is I'd never experienced depression or anxiety. Um, and even though I knew that there were medical reasons for both of those in a lot of cases, to me, uh, I felt like, okay, can you choose not to be anxious? Like, that seems like if you can choose not to be anxious, then, then let's not be anxious. Um, that was, uh, really immature, uh, to think that way and seeing how my brain, um, disability through Lyme disease, uh, impacted my anxiety and being sick for that long impacted my depression, um, helped me to have empathy and sit with other people and be patient with other people and love on other people that were going through similar things, even if it wasn't caused by Lyme disease, it, you know, it could be a variety of reasons, but it kind of allowed me to sit in, um, in that mess a little bit with people in a way that I think has been super helpful for me as a pastor to be able to do. Pastor Dan, let me ask you the final question that we ask all of our guests on Take Boot Camp, and, um, and I'm going to use one of your children as an example. So if God forbid, after this podcast, and we again, thank you for doing this podcast while you're out camping, um, if while, while your children were running around in the woods while you were doing this podcast, and you exited the car and you went into the tent, uh, one of your children had a tick biting them, what would you do so that your child would not have to go on the terrible Lyme disease journey that both you and your wife had to go on? Yeah, well, I would, uh, I would, I would tweeze the tick out. Um, and I would probably go and watch a refresher video on the right way to do that. Uh, because I know that you can, you can do that the wrong way and, and leave, um, you know, the head of the tick and, and, and you can force them to regurgitate more bacteria. And so you want to do that properly. I would get the tick out and, uh, and send it in to be tested. And I would on, honestly automatically um, try to convince the doctors to, to give them the double dose of doxycycline um, and put them on that one way or another for at least a month and probably get them tested as well. So hopefully that won't happen. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Pastor Dan Price. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Pastor Dan, please visit his Instagram page at Dan Price Photo. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at 
www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.